invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3. In verses 1 through 4, Paul said that if we're going to have any success over fleshly indulgence, then it doesn't come through a life of man-made extra-biblical rules. At the end of chapter 2, we saw that that doesn't work. That actually has no value for um, getting rid of those things. Instead, we need to fix our attention on the risen and exalted Christ. We are united with Christ in His death and His resurrection and His future glory, and so that is where our affections ought to lie. So how do we do that? The answer is that we need to make Christ's interests our interests. Make Christ's priorities our priorities. And that means in verses 5-11, through 11, we need to put off the deeds of the flesh. We need to put off immoral activity. We need to put off wrath-filled and abusive speech. We need to put off lying to one another. And the reason that Paul gave in those verses is because in Christ we have been set free from those former sins, from that former way of life. We have been united with Christ and with other believers, no matter what their ethnic or social standing is. We are united with them. Christ has brought us together, freed us from those old sins, and united us together in one body. And so making Christ's interests our interests means first that we need to get rid of our the, the sin that is in our lives, verses 5-11. through 11. Second, To make Christ's interests our interests, we need to engage in and take pleasure in the virtues that the Spirit has initiated in us. We need to put on deeds of righteousness. That's what this text is about in verses 12 through 17. We've taken off the soiled and stained garments at salvation that we wore when we were enemies of the King. And so now we need to put on, or we have put on, the clothes that are consistent with being a child of king, and there's no sense for us to go back to those old clothes. And so let me uh, read our text for us, beginning in verse 12. This is the Word of God. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. In this text, we're going to see that we need to love one another to the glory of God. Paul, can you uh, advance those slides for me to the theme? Yeah, this remote's not working, so couple more. There you go. Thank you. Love one another to the glory of God. So 
So put off the, the old the old clothes that resent, represented their former way of life and put on these new clothes that represent being a child of the king. And that means that we must love one another. All of these activities here that, that we see in verses 12 through 17 have some kind of effect on the people with whom we engage ourselves, that is, the, the church. And so that's why we're going to see one another kind of kinds of commands, like in verse 13, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. So, first, our interaction with one another must be motivated by thankfulness to God. Our interaction with one another must be motivated by thankfulness to God. Verses 12 and 16. The first word in verse 12 is the word so. So as those who have been chosen. I finished last time by saying that we need to be who we are. We are not alive to sin and dead to righteousness. We have been united with Christ in His death. And that means that we are dead to sin's power. It no longer has a hold on us that it once did. And so we, we have the ability now in Christ to say yes to sin. We are no longer unable to please God. That's how we once were. We were unable to please God, but that's not the way it is now. We have died to sin. And so we need to stop using the instruments of our body as instruments of unrighteousness. We've been made alive to righteousness. We have put on the new man. God has regenerated us. And so we need to stop hanging out in the graveyard where we once were dead and put on the clothes of, of righteousness instead. The clothes that are fitting with our new self and our new nature. Clothes that are fitting with being a child of the King because that is who we are. So be who you are. Notice the three realities that ought to motivate us here in verse 12. First, God's choice of us as those who have been chosen of God. So this is going to affect how we're going to respond, how we treat one another. He's going to say, put on these acts of righteousness. As, and the, the, way we, the reason we can do that is because of these three things. We are chosen of God, verse 12. We are holy and we are beloved. God has chosen us and this should motivate us to serve Him. Secondly, because we are holy. The word holy is a word that just means to be set apart. We have been set apart from the kingdom of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And this should motivate us to serve one another, to interact with one another in a way that's loving. And then thirdly, beloved. We are loved by God. Not only are we chosen of God and we are set apart for His purposes, but He actually loves us. So these three things ought to be uh, one of the reasons that, that we are happy to serve others, happy to engage with others. And the second, uh, the second thing that we see there is, is thankfulness there in verse 16. Consider who you are, and then secondly, be thankful. Look at um, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then he says how to do that by singing to one another. And at the end, with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. But notice the end of verse 15. The beginning says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The end says, and be thankful. So verse 15 and 16. Be thankful with thankfulness. And then verse 17. At the end, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Paul is constantly reminding us that we need to be thankful people. 
Whatever you do, give thanks. We are thankful to God for what He's done for us. We're, we're reminded of His gracious acts and we ought to respond with an attitude of gratefulness. We ought to respond with actions that are consistent with a, a gratitude that we have because of what God has done for us. So God, because of what You've done for me, I'm happy to serve others. I'm happy to serve You by serving others. That's what a heart of gratefulness will do for us. These are not the only motivations that will fuel our service of others. We'll see that God's forgiveness of us will as well in verse 13. But, but these are at the heart of it. Who we are, we are chosen of God, holy, set apart for His purposes, and loved by Him. And so therefore we ought to be thankful, and these things ought to fuel what we're doing here, which is that our interaction with one another must be marked by love. Verses 12 through 14. Our interaction with one another must be marked by love. Now, there are two commands in these three verses. And really, the, the second is just an extension of the first. The first is seen in the middle of verse 2. Put on a heart of... And he's going to list five attributes. And the second is found in verse 14. Beyond all these, put on love. So put on a heart of... He's going to list what those are. And then he's going to say, above, and then above all these, love. So, so put on that as well. So first, a heart of compassion in verse 12. Do you see that in the text? A heart of compassion. Literally, bowels of mercy. As you interact with one another, use compassion. Use care for, for their needs. Put on kindness. Next, uh, Paul commands in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another, tender-hearted and forgiving. And so it's a very basic uh, attribute that, that ought to be a reality in our lives as Christians because of what God has done for us. Thirdly, humility. When we're interacting with other people, it ought to be marked by humility rather than a posture of superiority and condescension toward one another. Instead, we, we, we recognize ourselves in light of who God is and who we are, deserving of His wrath, and we treat one another with that kind of, of care and recognition of who we are. Fourthly, gentleness. Another word for meekness. This is the opposite of, of sinful anger. This, this kind of seething, um, slow-burning wrath. The opposite of that is, is gentleness or meekness. It's a, the ability to take a situation and calm, it, calm yourself down first and calm others down potentially. And then fifth, patience. This is the opposite of resentment. You know, this feeling inside of us that just despises that person. We're, we're patient with them. We're slow to anger. We're, we're long-suffering. And, and these attributes all are a reflection, really, of how God treats us. Even though we were objects of His wrath, He treated us with compassion. He treated us with kindness. He treated us with gentleness. He treated us with patience. And even in the sending of His Son through Christ, Christ came in humility, Right? Philippians chapter 2 tells us that we ought to put on a spirit of humility uh, just like Jesus did. And he humbled himself and became obedient unto the cross. So put on these attributes. These are motivated by what God has done for us. Now there are two more verbals that serve as expectations for how we treat one another and they're found in verse 13. The first is bearing one another. Bearing with one another. It means to hold yourself back. Hold yourself back from one another. 
The reality of living among sinners in the context of a local assembly of believers is that we're going to have to bear with one another. We're going to have to tolerate one another with regard to minor differences. This is not a one-time action, but rather something that we must continually do. We must continually bear with one another. Now, the Holy Spirit's call for us to bear with one another within the context, I, I believe, of believers, Christians, is not the same toleration that our culture is calling for. The toleration that our culture is calling for is a toleration at the expense of truth. But we're going to see in verses 15 and 16 that our interaction needs to be guided by the Spirit and characterized by mutual discipleship so we can't just abandon truth in order to, be, to get along, right? We just, we're all going to just bear with one another. And so what the Scriptures are calling for is us to actually just be slow to, to take offense at other people when they have a difference with us. You know, in, in our society, our, our society is constantly calling for political correctness. But we have the other extreme in our society as well that's calling for the opposite of that, and that is to tell it like it is, as if it's a badge of honor to say whatever you're thinking. But don't buy into that lie. That extreme is just as dangerous. As Christians, we need to bite our tongues often. We need to be quiet when we feel like speaking up at times. And when to do that is a matter of discernment. So we need to bear with one another. One of the challenges of living with other sinners is that you're going to have to do this at times. And, and maybe often. The second way we display these virtues is in the second part of verse 13 by forgiving one another. Notice whom we are to forgive. If anyone has a complaint, uh, if anyone has a, whoever has a complaint against anyone. So <clears throat> the people that we have a complaint about and someone that we have a legitimate claim because of their perhaps godless behavior or their thoughtless actions, these are the people that we are to forgive. And the reason that we can forgive and that we ought to forgive is why. Look at the second part of verse 13. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The reason that we can forgive, the reason that we can bear with one another is because God bared with us. He, he bore with us. He forgave us. So has anyone done something so evil to you? that it has exceeded the evil that you have done to God by killing His Son with your sin? Right, if we recognize why Jesus went to the cross, not for the sins just of the whole world, but for my sins, and if I were the only one here on the earth, Jesus would still have to die for my sins. So I'm responsible for the death of Jesus, and, and I committed a serious crime against Almighty God if I recognize that, any evil that's done against me is minor in comparison to that. Not, as, not that it's unimportant or, or that it's not hurtful or we're just imagining it to be too evil. No, it's, it still can be hurtful. But, but our sin is always, our sin against God is, is much worse than any sin that anyone else can do against us. And so here's the point. If God can forgive you despite your horrific sins against Him, if God can do that, and He can, and He has, 
then can you, can you not forgive someone else who has mistreated you? And notice that Paul doesn't give a qualification, does he? He doesn't say, you know, only if the other person asks for forgiveness. No, we need to have a forgiving spirit. We need to be forgiving, no matter the other person's disposition. No matter if they're not ready to ask for forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean we go around, you know, and and start giving out forgiveness like Oprah gives out cars, you know. I forgive you and you and you. But we ought to have a heart of forgiveness so that if a person comes up to you uh, or, or us at the end of the service and says, you know, I failed, I, I mistreated you, I sinned against you, then we can say, I forgive you, or I already have forgiven you. Not, let me go home and think about it. See if it's real. See if I really want to do that. Instead, already have a forgiving spirit, like we have examples of in the Scripture, like Jesus at the cross, and Stephen at his death. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. How often are we like the unmerciful servant? We have been forgiven this enormous debt in Matthew 18. God's forgiven it to, from us. And what do we do? We turn around and we start choking the person who's had this minor debt against us until they pay back everything that they owe. We're quick to be unmerciful even though we have been forgiven an enormous debt. The final command in this first section is in verse 14. It is to put on love. And there's a sense in which all of these actions ought to be marked by love. But the point is is that whatever you do, show love. Make sure that your interaction with one another is marked by love. So when you give and forgive, love. Love through caring and listening. Love through praying and enduring. Love through encouraging and challenging. Love through bearing with them. Make sure that all of your actions are marked by love because love is the perfect bond of unity, the text says. Loving one another is what what joins us together as a body. It binds us together. So our interaction with one another must be motivated by thankfulness to God. It must be marked by love. And then thirdly, our interaction with one another must be guarded by peace. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. You might think, well, this is a brand new list. But this is not disconnected from the previous commands. All of those acts of love are connected with this pursuit of peace. This should serve as the final arbiter for all of our interactions. The call for corporate peace. So when we have a choice between A and B, we ought to determine the one that's more in keeping with peace if, if neither one of them has a, a moral component to it. We ought to pursue the one that's in keeping with peace, not division. One of the primary ways that we create division is by engaging in the prohibited sins in verses 5-11, through 11, right? We have all this anger and, and this wrath and this malice and evil speaking and lying, and, that, and we create division through those, through those sins, because they're self-centered. We're not seeking peace. We're not seeking to, to keep the peace. We're seeking to get our way. So we divide. We're not letting the peace of Christ rule among us. 
And this command to pursue peace is consistent with James 4.4. What is the reason that you have any conflict among you? Why do you have wars? Conflicts among you in your relationships? Do they not come because you desire to have and you can't? The source of all of our conflicts is this evil desire in us to get what we want at the expense of anything. At the expense of others, their happiness, their, their desires... And that's not love. That's not seeking the peace of Christ. This peace ought to define us as a body of believers. Do you see that at the end of the verse? To which indeed you are called in one body. Do you know churches that are marked by division, backbiting, and hate? Have you been part of those churches? Let us not be like that. Let us stay true to our calling to pursue peace in everything. When, when it comes to a choice, between two things. Obviously, truth is critical, but, but if truth is, is, uh, is not at stake in either one of them, we need to seek the one choice that pursues peace. Number four, our interaction with one another must be guided by the Spirit. Verse 16. Our interaction with one another must be guided by the Spirit. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. What I want you to notice in this text is is a certain sequence that Paul uses because we're going to see this in Ephesians 5 as well. And the sequence is this. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you, a command. How do we do that, Paul? With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So through your singing, by encouraging one another through your singing, and then the end of verse 16, with thankfulness. So command, sing, in a way the disciples, and then be thankful, the end of verse 16, and do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 17, and then verse 18 gets into the commands to, to, um, to care for one another in your relationships. Wives, submit, husbands, love, slaves, obey, masters, rule with care, and so on. All right, now turn back to Ephesians chapter 5 because I want to show you this very similar sequence that we just saw here in Colossians 3. And... In doing so, show you uh, what it means to be guided by the Spirit. And the reason I call it being guided by the Spirit, even though the text talks about letting the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. Ephesians 5. Look at the end of verse 8. Be filled with the Spirit. Here's our command. And then, how do we do that, Paul? Verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Okay, so there's that second component, singing in a way the disciples. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Okay, so there's the thanksgiving part. And then he moves in verse 22 to talk about relationships, how this looks in our relationships. Wives, submit. Husbands, love. And then down to chapter 6, children, obey. Fathers, do not provoke. Slaves, obey. Masters, uh, show care to them. So so what we have is really from the singing and thankfulness down to the expectations for the relationships, they're all the same in both passages. The only difference is this first one here. Look, Look again at verse 18 at the end. Be filled with the Spirit. Do you remember the first command in Colossians 3? You can peek over there if you need to. We're going back there anyway. It's let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. What Paul is doing is he's saying the same thing in both passages And he's just saying it a different way. So what does it mean in verse 18 of Ephesians 5 to be filled with the Spirit? 
It means to let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Colossians 3, verse 16. I think the point is, is that the way that we are filled with the Spirit, it's nothing magical. Like, fill me up with the Spirit. What does that mean? It means being filled with Christ's word in you. That is, the, to allow the Scriptures to, to change you, to affect you, to, to be imparted to you. The Word of Christ is not something we put on the shelf or, or only use as a reference book, but something that, that should control and guide us. Maybe that includes memorizing Scripture. I think that would be a valid application. I don't think that's commanded here, but, but I think it's a valid application. The, the point is, is that we need to accept the message of Christ as true and embrace it as a way of life. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So you want to be filled with the Spirit? You want to have more of the Spirit than you do now in the sense that you are controlled by Him more than you ought to be or, or more than you, you are right now? Then, then you allow the Word of Christ to dwell in you. So our interaction with one another must be guided by the Spirit. It's, that is, the, the Word of God, the truth of God's Word is what controls us. Number five, our interaction with one another must be characterized by mutual discipleship. It must be characterized by mutual discipleship at the end of verse 16, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns. Um, actually, the text says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So how will this spirit-filling affect us as a church? What does this look like for us as a church to be spirit-filled? Not just me individually, but what does it look like as a whole? And the answer is that when we as a church, as a congregation as a whole, are filled with the Spirit, are letting the Word of Christ dwell in you, then it will lead to us singing to one another. That is, teaching and admonishing. Teaching truth and admonishing warning against error. As we're filled up with the Word of Christ, we're able and willing to teach and admonish one another. And the mode of our teaching and warning is not each person... You know, we have a round table kind of thing or, or kind of have a round robin uh, where everybody gets up at the pulpit and teaches and admonishes. No, instead we do it through singing. And this kind of teaching through song is a necessary element of our worship. It's one of the ways that we learn about the truths of God is by singing truth to one another. And it, it ought to be helpful and, and, and a blessing to our souls when we hear other believers who are singing with joy the the, the the songs of truth that we're singing. It ought to be an encouragement to us that they're agreeing with what they are singing. And so we do this with all wisdom and with thankfulness. Everything that we do as a church, particularly our singing here, must be done with wisdom and it must be done with thankfulness. That's what the, the bookends kind of the, of the second part of verse 16 show us. Finally, in verse 17, everything must be done for God. So in summary, all of our interaction must be done to honor God. We, we talk this way all the time. I want to do this to the glory of God. Or what do you, why are you living? Why are you uh, doing this thing? We, we say we do it to the glory of God. In this case, it is in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean that we go around saying things like, you know, I drove to work in the name of Jesus. So I, just, I need to declare it. I buy these groceries in the name of Jesus. I go to sleep in the name of Jesus. There's nothing magical about using 
the name of Jesus tagged on to whatever we're doing. In the name of is another way of saying according to the reputation of. In other words, we want to go to work in a way that we'd be consistent with the Christian character. We want to buy groceries in a way that's consistent with who Christ is. We want to go to sleep in a way that would honor His reputation. So no matter what it, what it is that we do, that's what the text says, whatever you do, in word or in action, do it for, for God's glory, for Christ's sake, and, and, and what is consistent with His reputation. All of our words and actions ought to be a reflection of what God has done for us and His goodness that He has shown to us. So, in conclusion, those who have been chosen by God recognize their dependence on God, are thankful to God, and consequently live their lives in service to God and others. Those who have been chosen by God recognize their dependence on God, can you advance that to the last one? Are thankful to God. Thanks. And constantly live their lives in service to God and others. So how do we how do we get away from this compulsion of the sin to pull us away from from Christ? The answer is that we need to fix our eyes on the risen and exalted Christ. We we do that by making His interests, our interests. Making His priorities, our priorities. We put off the sins that represent our former way of life and we put out a heart of love, compassion, humility, motivated by what God has done for us. He has chosen us. He has set us apart for His purposes wholly. And He has loved us, beloved. He has forgiven us. He has placed us into a body of believers. He has left us with His Word. We are the recipients of God's abundant mercy. And so we ought to respond to the abundant storehouse of mercy that has been poured out on us and use it as motivation to love Him and to serve others in return. It should not be uh, something that we have to do kicking and screaming. I don't want to bear with these people. I don't want to forgive these people. It, it ought to come from a heart that's truly thankful because we've seen ourselves in light of who God is. We need to be truly thankful. Thanksgiving is not a courtesy or a way to show good manners like our culture uses thankfulness. You know, it's just courtesy or a way to show good manners. No, it's a profound humility. As a Christian, it's a profound humility that recognizes our dependence on God. The opposite of real thankfulness, the opposite of gratitude is ungratefulness or pride. It's a feeling of self-sufficiency. When we don't thank God, we are self-sufficient. We act as if we're self-sufficient. And when we live in that way, we are ill-prepared and unmotivated to serve others. And so that's why the Scriptures are constantly reminding us to be thankful. I mean, why would God ever have to command us to be thankful? Shouldn't that just naturally flow from us? We'd expect yes, but the nature of ourselves is that we begin over time to start taking credit for what has happened in our lives. And we forget God, like the children of Israel did in the wilderness. And if we're not careful before long, we will turn away from God. Those who have been chosen by God recognize their dependence on Him, are thankful to Him, and consequently live their lives in service to God and to others. So let's live our lives 
and service to others to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is with humility and thanksgiving that we come before you today reminded of your goodness to us, your faithfulness, your mercy, um, your forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we have committed uh, the greatest, our our sins in a way that, that has affected the greatest person in all of the universe, and that is you. Our sins are an offense against you, and yet you did not destroy us. You were long-suffering with us. You bore with us. You gave us time to reflect on Your Word and to be um, convicted by Your Holy Spirit. You gave us time to respond with faith to Your Word. And Lord, while we were sinners, You sent Christ to die for us. And so we're grateful for Your sacrifice on our behalf. We're grateful for Your forgiveness. And we want to live our lives in service to You by serving others, but it's not easy. Lord, the easy thing to do is to lash out in anger. The easy thing is to lie and manipulate. The easy thing to do is to be abusive with our speech, to be resentful in our hearts, but it's hard for us to to bear with one another, forgive them, and mostly because we have our eyes fixed on ourselves. So help us to fix our eyes on the risen and exalted Christ and make his interests our interests. Lord, make our lives an alleluia to you for a song of praise to you each day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.